from Stanford University and KZSU. It's giving Caitlin nightmares and I have to sing her a song about good beetles that don't eat your face off. Pretty beetle, he sleeps in the wind, nibbles grass but never your skin. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project. Everyone can say that they have the greatest pet in the whole wide world. We all know what it's like to have a meaningful relationship with an animal. I'd even go as far to say that our relationships with animals can be as meaningful as our relationships with other people. I, for example, have a cat who can talk and listens better than some people I know. Sometimes her and I will just sit on the couch and I'll say, Oh, kitty, kitty. And she'll respond, Mer. And I'll say, Oh, kitty, kitty. She'll say, Mer. And we could go on for hours like that. Okay. Maybe it isn't the most meaningful exchange, but we all know what it's like to have animals deeply affect us. Think of Lassie, Flipper, the Horse Whisperer, or think of the research of Diane Fossey and Jane Goodall. All of these examples show how humans can change us at a more profound level. They can even change our experience of being human. Today's show is about just that. It's about how animals, in a strange way, can humanize us. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project for KZSU Stanford, and I'm your host, Bonnie Swift. Each week, we bring you stories of all kinds, told by Stanford students, professors, fellows, and alumni. This is the second part of a two-part series about the unusual and profound roles that animals play in our lives. Today, we have two great stories. First, a documentary by Stephen Tegel and James Madsen, who take us on a tour of the Stanford Animal Research Facility. And second, a short story about one father's strange relationship with the family's dead dog. First, to the animal research facility. Uh, hi, this is James Madsen and Stephen Cagle. We're here for a meeting with uh, Dr. Glenn Otto, Dr. Ravi Kalani, and Linda Corp. Okay, pull the door. As my friend James and I pass through the main doors of Stanford's research animal facility, our pace quickens. We walk briskly down white-walled, red-floored hallways, passing empty cages and locked animal rooms. They're down here, somewhere. The monkeys. Two weeks ago, we had no clue that monkeys were living within walking distance of our dorms and dining halls. Now they're all we think about. We've heard rumors about the lab. We've heard it's a place where bizarre experiments are performed. A sterile facility hidden in the maze-like basement of the med school and run by tight-lipped researchers. We imagine monkeys chained to their cages, howling in pain as someone drills needles through their skulls. So while we're not here to bomb the lab, we do have an agenda. We want to investigate the rumors and expose the monkeys' treatment to the public eye. We expect to be met with guarded suspicion. We expect to be shocked and deceived. What we don't expect is the buttery smell of popping popcorn, which hits us as we approach the monkey cages. The animal smells that there's popcorn in there and we'll start, you know, tearing it open and, and having a great time eating the popcorn, ripping up the bag, um, you know, making a mess of the cage. Dr. Glenn Otto, the attending veterinarian at Stanford and the associate director of the Veterinary Service Center, meets us at the end of the main hallway. Waving in the direction of the chirping monkeys, he explains to us why we'd be hard-pressed to find them howling in pain. The, the conception is that there are, you know, animals sitting in stark cages with, you know, bleeding sores and oozing lesions and that, and that trauma is, you know, intentionally done. That just doesn't exist. It's actually a pretty good time to be a lab animal. As we continue down the corridor, a researcher passes us wheeling a rhesus monkey with stiff tubes sticking out of its head. James and I turn to each other with eyebrows raised, wondering if this is what monkeys have to do to earn their popcorn. We discover that the monkey has just returned from an experiment on neuroprosthesis, a technique which bypasses the spinal cord and sends signals directly to the motor centers of the brain. Mark, the researcher, explains to us the goal of the experiment. The goal is to 
uh, create neuroprosthetics that would allow paralyzed patients to interact with the world, uh, to move, move a cursor around a computer screen or, or type out a letter. Despite their seemingly courageous research goals, animal research labs like Stanford's are not free from controversy. In the past year alone, an animal rights group called Revolutionary Cells bombed Chiron and Shakely, two barrier firms that are involved in animal testing. The group has also obtained the home addresses and phone numbers of the firm's key employees and has used that information to threaten them and their families. Linda Cork, chairman of the Department of Comparative Medicine and director of the Veterinary Service Center, finds animal activists' antagonism towards scientists distressing. I have a lot of problems understanding why individuals who say that they are into kindness and humane treatment go around wanting to blow up people like me. Stanford incurred costs of $1.3 million when animal protection groups attempted to block the construction of the facility in which we're now standing. Since then, groups like People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals have filed reports accusing the lab of animal abuse. As a result of pressure from these activist groups, lab animal protocols now require researchers to treat the monkeys as humanely as possible. But how humanely are these animals really treated? There's a basic minimum level of enrichment in social housing that we do provide the primates. Dr. Ravi Tolwani is an associate professor of comparative medicine and a faculty veterinarian at Stanford. We have a group of individuals on the enrichment subcommittee that actually looks at how to best optimize the enrichment and then determine what's working, what's not working, and then modify those things accordingly. The Animal Welfare Act of 1985 mandates that researchers must provide a physical environment adequate to promote the psychological well-being of primates. Efforts to ensure the psychological well-being of primates are known as enrichment. There are two kinds of enrichment, inanimate enrichment, giving the monkeys stimulating food and toys, and social enrichment, housing them in groups. As James and I walk further down the corridor, we get a sense that the monkeys have been expecting us. In each room we pass, the monkey chatter rises and falls in waves of anticipation. Is this the cry for help we've been waiting for? Apparently, they're not crying out for help. They're just hungry. It turns out that popcorn isn't the only special food that the monkeys enjoy. In fact, researchers provide monkeys with many unique combinations of food as part of their inanimate enrichment. Like the fresh popcorn, some of these treats can be as tantalizing for humans as they are for monkeys. When we were doing the monkey training, we used lifesavers, and their favorite flavor was tangerine. One of our research associates is trying to collect unique fruits on a once-a-week basis. As if on cue, a researcher appears at the end of the hall. She strolls towards us, wheeling a tray stocked with sliced fruits. This is the, some of the, uh, the fruits that are provided to the squirrel monkeys. As you can see, the apples and the bananas are cut into small, bite-sized pieces. Well, I take this in there, they're going to be happy. The chatter builds to a roar as the monkeys catch sight of the fresh fruit. And these fruits aren't nearly as exciting as some of the other treats the lab cooks up. Well, we found out that if you freeze raisins in orange juice ice cubes, you know, the monkeys love that because they suck them until they get the raisins and they chew on those. When James and I later search for these strange orange juice ice cubes online, we are amazed to find entire databases of monkey food enrichment, recommending such oddities as cherry Kool-Aid mashed potatoes. We also stumble upon primateproducts.com, a sleek website which offers spinning mirrors, one of the primate's favorite toys, and even Fisher-Price talkie phones adapted for primate use. Later in our tour, Dr. Tolwani invites us to handle a few of the toys the lab uses to stimulate the monkeys and encourage species-typical behavior. This is a ball that's about five inches in diameter or so. There's some small metallic material present within the ball that the monkey can actually shake and make a noise from. We stop at a door at the end of the corridor. Dr. Otto opens a small window in the door and motions for James and me to look inside. The most beneficial thing you can give to a primate is social grouping. Peering through the window, we see about 40 small squirrel monkeys housed in large gang cages that line each side of the room. Each cage is divided into five run sections and equipped with perches and passages that allow the monkeys to scamper between the sections. 
Baby squirrel monkeys piggyback on their mothers, and their high-pitched chirping sounds like the chatter of schoolgirls. We learn that each cage houses an entire troop of monkeys. We've got some research groups that spend a lot of time trying to document which animals would be compatible. The next room we pass is the intensive care area, where monkeys are brought to recover from operations. There are two rhesus monkeys in this room. One, wrapped in a blue blanket, lies prone and looks deathly ill. The other, a more active and robust monkey, gently strokes his buddy's arm through the blanket with apparent concern. If an animal is removed from a room for medical treatment, we actually try to bring along somebody else from that same room so it has a buddy there that it can can still feel comfortable with. After our first day touring the research facility, Dr. Cork escorts James and me back to the surface and asks us, in a way that reminds us of our parents, what we've learned from our visit. We admit how surprised we are by the lab's treatment of the monkeys. We expected to find monkeys being tortured with needles, not eating popcorn and hanging out with friends. But James and I are surprised in another way as well. That final part of the tour, the room with the compassionate monkey buddies, strikes a chord. It actually reminds us of our visit to the hospital last summer to see a friend who had just undergone open-heart surgery. We remember sitting by his bed, comforting him with stories, and promising he'd be well soon. The exchange between the monkey buddies seems so familiar and so human that it begs exploration. So, with renewed determination, we schedule another appointment to see the Rhesus Monkey Rooms. I want to be a man, man cop, and stroll right into town, and be just like the other men, I'm tired of walking around. On our second visit to the lab, Dr. Otto takes James and me down a much quieter corridor to the rhesus monkey rooms. This is one of the rooms that's been transformed into a happy place both for the monkeys and for the staff. What we see amazes us. The room looks like a children's daycare center. There is a little jungle mural painted in bright colors on the wall, and the monkeys' cages are filled with colorful toys, spinning mirrors, and bags of popcorn. Each cage is a souped-up playpen, equipped with a wide variety of enrichment devices. But the monkeys aren't rattling around too much. Instead, they're all staring up at the corner of the room. Following their gaze, we see it. There's a television set mounted up in the corner here so they can be given videotapes for audiovisual stimulation. Barney. The monkeys are watching Barney. Many of the squirrel monkeys were housed in large groups playing in cages. They have each other. Okay, so you have kids in school. Um, on the other hand, many of the rhesus monkeys only got to play with kids in school for set periods of time. So they're at home, and they need additional enrichment because they don't have other kids to play with. The T-Bone Nature shows and bring them in. They like anything with monkeys in it. And that's when it hits us. The question isn't, are the monkeys being treated humanely? But rather, are the monkeys being treated like humans? When James and I asked Dr. Cork what researchers' attempts to enrich the monkeys' environment say about them, she responds quite cautiously. I think that our interest in enriching their environment says that we are concerned about them. We care about their responses. We respect their behaviors uh, that are unique to them. And we want to provide them an environment that is the highest quality that we can. Scientists tell us that there is only a 1.2% genetic distance between us and monkeys. Could this explain why environmental enrichment seems to reflect human values? Dr. Cork strongly disagrees with the idea of projecting human values onto monkeys. I don't pretend to know what makes a monkey happy. I prefer that people respect the animals as the animals they are. But do I do it sometimes? Of course, everybody. Respecting the animals' species-specific traits sounds great in theory. James and I can't speak for all animal labs, but with enrichment techniques that seem so humanizing, how can researchers resist treating the monkeys like little people in fur coats? Inspecting the room more closely, we can read the monkeys' names written in small, dark handwriting on colored placards next to each cage. It certainly is very easy to give them names because each one has their own personality. 
there are some facilities that even try to, you know, suggest that people not name the animals and let's stick to the numbers. It never works. I have actually noticed uh, is that some monkeys are more inquisitive than others, is that certain monkeys appear to be more friendly than others, certain monkeys are more accepting of uh, treats, certain monkeys appear shy. So what's in a name? Researchers usually put each monkey's name to a vote. Though they're often named alphabetically based on the year they were acquired, Trekkies and lovers of Greek mythology also get a say. I actually named the first four monkeys because nobody else could make up their mind and I got tired of calling them one, two, three, and four. There is that, that connection that occurs uh, once you understand the personality of the monkey better. I decided on Apollo Bakich, Cindy and Dorothy. The monkeys have names. They have personalities. They watch TV. They're almost like children, in a way, living in toy-filled playpens and waiting for their evening treats. Dr. Otto said earlier that this room is a happy place for both the monkeys and the staff, and we can imagine the researchers spending a weekend in this room, painting the jungle mural and discussing their work. After paying such close attention to the monkeys' needs, identifying with them on a human level seems unavoidable. People who work with laboratory animals do care about the monkeys a lot, and if the animal is kept around for a very long time, they become attached to it. One of our research associates will try to groom the primate. So at some point, if the animal has to be euthanized, uh, this can cause uh, some grief for the individual, and we recognize that. We have training sessions for people uh, to help them deal with any feelings that they may have about their work with animals. James and I sense a problem here, a catch-22. In trying so desperately to treat the monkeys humanely, researchers must, to some degree, treat them like humans. They must stimulate the monkeys with novel foods and interactive toys. They must give the monkeys companions. They must form attachments, crossing the line between experimental object and experimental subject. The point of the whole thing, though, is to address why we're doing the work um, at all. It's important to understand how the brain works. It's important to understand how transplantation rejection occurs. And if we feel that it's important, then that helps us to deal with the issue of regret, uh, loss, uh, that you have with animals. The eventual euthanasia of these monkeys reminds James and me of the main goal of animal research, to help humans. Ultimately, monkeys are the objects of scientific inquiry. They are objects to be poked, dissected, and analyzed in the most impersonal sense. They are the tools by which we expand our understanding of prosthesis, perception, and social interaction. But it's hard like being a military commander who must send his men to battle for a cause much greater than themselves. Training sessions attempt to re-distance researchers from the monkeys by reminding them of the animal's greater scientific significance. Researchers command the monkeys' fates, but not without feeling the responsibility and compassion that a commander feels for his men. I am a humble monkey James and I first entered the lab skeptical of what researchers called humane treatment. How humanely can you treat an animal you're going to euthanize, we thought. After our visits to the lab, however, we found, like the researchers, that monkeys are more than just bodies to be experimented on. We were introduced to Apollo, Bacchus, and Cindy, not as scientific wonders, but as real beings with their own personalities and spirits. Our short visits to the lab gave us a hint of the conflict that researchers face every day. Because somewhere along the line, somewhere between fitting their cages with toy balls and freezing the latest batch of orange juice ice cubes, researchers fall in love with their monkey subjects. Researchers face an inevitable conflict between treating the monkeys as real beings and treating them as objects of scientific research. Euthanasia exacerbates this conflict by forcing researchers to contradict the humanizing goals of enrichment and to stifle their own emotions for the sake of the greater good. Although researchers paint jungle murals for the monkeys and make them popcorn, 
they must also euthanize and dissect them. The heavy psychological burden that researchers carry as a result of this conflict shows that they honestly believe in the work they do. While they're not losing their lives, these researchers do sacrifice. They must suppress a part of their humanity so that the monkeys can have theirs. story is about two children, their divorced parents, and most especially, their dog. Here is Eric Puckner with Animals Here Below. And what's it all for? I don't want this kind of love anymore. We haven't seen our mother in really long, a long time three years almost. So when she pulls up to the curb and gets out of her station wagon, Caitlin and I run out there to touch her hair. It's the longest hair I've ever seen, blonde and slithery and down to her rear. My mom laughs and bends over and lets us feel how heavy it is. Mr. Grown-up, she calls me. We fill our arms with hair, which smells like french fries. So long it makes me want to not let go. I make up a song because that's what I always do. Hair of ages, who do you trust? Hair of ages taller than us. Dad doesn't come out to see her hair. We used to be rich, but now my father works at the airport handling people's luggage. A ramp agent, he's called. He's got these coveralls that say Hudson General on them and plastic earmuffs that look like headphones. He wears them at the kitchen table sometimes when Caitlin and I talk about our mother. If she hadn't fallen in love with a math teacher, none of this would have happened. Now she's back from Alaska. If I ask Dad about it, he just laughs for no reason and says, I guess she's fed up with him, too. My mom follows us into the kitchen, glancing around the house and stopping now and then to shake her head. She's never been here before. I keep sneaking glances at her face. She's paler than I remember, and you can see right through her eyebrows to the skin underneath. When she smiles, secret lines crease out from the corners of her mouth, three or four on each side, like ripples getting smaller. Caitlin's gone special ed and just keeps staring at her, mouth unhinged. She's six and doesn't know she's being rude. There's a sugar crust of sleep in her eyelashes. I have some presents for you in the car, Mom says, leaning her head to one side and swinging her hair around to the front, slow and gentle, like a crane moving something heavy. She peers at the door to my dad's room, where he's pretending to be asleep. It's only recently they've begun talking again. She was going to stay at a hotel, but I got Caitlin to throw one of her tragic fits. Tomorrow night we can see a movie, Caitlin says, too loudly. Mom blushes pink right through her eyebrows. Your, your father didn't tell you? I can only stay for a night. Why, I say. Dad did tell us, but this is part of our plan, mine and Caitlin's. I have an interview in Austin at a school there, They need someone to teach music. She squats down to our height. But I'll come back to Tucson in a couple weeks to visit after I get settled at your Aunt Tina's. We're not going to the Desert Museum? She studies me carefully. Yes, in the morning. I I promised we would. She asks for some water, and I get her a glass down from the cupboard, inspecting the rim for little orange juice bits. Then I open the freezer for some ice before remembering what's in there. Zoomer, our cocker spaniel, died last week from dog cancer, and my dad plans to send him to a renderer in Montana who does museum skeletons. Supposedly, the guy has some special bugs that are going to clean Zoomer's skull, make it shiny and beautiful, something you can put on your desk. Dermistid beetles, they're called. It's giving Caitlin nightmares, and I have to sing her a song about good beetles that don't eat your face off. Pretty beetle, he sleeps in the wind, nibbles grass, but never your skin. Zoomer gives me a sad look through his plastic bag, little icicles dangling from his beard. Bad dog, I mouth. The renderer is on vacation, which is why Zoomer's in the freezer, 
But I wonder if my dad's trying to do everything possible to make my mother run away again. I hand her the ice water, worried it smells like dog, but she doesn't notice and takes a long drink. The ice ticks against the glass, even when she's finished. She goes over to the window and looks at our backyard, which is just a dirt place surrounded by a chain-link fence, the only thing of interest being a clothes wire stretched tight with a little crank, my dad's blue jeans walking in the wind. Something about Mom's looking at it in her fancy sandals makes me feel ashamed. She plucks at the back of her dress, which is dark down the middle. I forgot it could get like this. It's monsoon season, Caitlin says. She knows, I tell her. Caitlin looks like she might cry, the little scar on her cheek dimpling into a V. My mom used to help me search for monsoons when I was younger, casing the sky with binoculars. That was before she ran off with Mr. Osterhout, when we lived in a big house with air conditioning and a view of the mountains and javelinas that drowned in the pool if you didn't close the gate. The mountains were covered in Sorraro cactus, which could kill you if they fell over, but they never did. At night, the wind went through them, and they sounded like music. Mom used to take us out there before bed, me and Caitlin and sometimes my dad, and we'd listen to the cactus humming everywhere at once, some of them 200 years old and taller than our house. She knew exactly what letter it was in, C or B-flat. My dad called her Miss Solemnus after her favorite Beethoven song. After she left, though, everything changed. Dad stopped going to work so he could listen to her CDs all day long, the same ones he'd always thought were boring. He'd drive us to school in his bathrobe and then pick us up as if no day had gone by, the hairs on his chest sticking out for everyone to see. He'd never paid much attention to Zoomer before, but then he started buying dog groceries every day, feeding him pig's ears and chicken croissants and canine cupcakes. Zoomer even began sleeping in bed with him. They'd snuggle together, refusing to get up before noon. After he got fired from the bank, I stopped at my dad's door in the middle of the day, and he was lying there with his eyes closed, letting Zoomer lick his toes. I watched Zoomer clean every toe like a cat, one through ten. That was the lower depths, as my dad calls it. I thought he'd escaped them, but now he hasn't been to work at all since Zoomer died, and even made me call the airport yesterday to tell them he had bronchitis. Mom takes me and Caitlin outside again to her station wagon, which is filled with shoes and boxes and garbage bags tied into mouse ears at the tops. The desert sun squinches her eyes. She hands us presents, wrapped up carefully with red ribbons, like the ones she sends from Alaska. I rip off the paper and pull out a box filled with little totem poles, which she explains is a chess set made of whalebone. I don't even know how to play chess, but I pretend to love it anyway because of the plan. We're going to make our mom fall in love with us again. With our father, too, even. That way she'll stay here forever and we'll stop being depressed and we'll be in the higher depths like we used to, moving back to the mountains where we can hear the cactus. I brought Zoomer something too, she says, holding up a fake bone with the words Top Dog written on it. Where is he anyway? Dog heaven, Caitlin says sadly. I give her a dirty look because she's forgotten what we agreed to say. It's a dog kennel, I explain. He's not dead. Mom squints at me, one hand cupped above her eyes. Why is he at the kennel? It's a school. They're training him to be obedient. I say this since I'm on the spot, and Dad used to joke about sending Zoomer to regurgitation training because there is so much dog puke cookied to the rug. Mom seems not to remember this. Luckily, the screen door squeaks into a slam, and my father appears on the porch wearing his Hudson General cap and flip-flops. He flops over to us. There's a pearl of shaving cream perched on the rim of his glasses. He stares at my mom's hair like someone in a trance. She looks down at her feet and hands him the fake bone she bought for Zoomer. Her face is all shy and speechless, and for a minute I think the plan's working before we've really started. Dad puts the bone in his teeth, I guess for a joke. No one says anything. He blushes and takes it out of his mouth. Nice to be back on top, he says, reading the words on it. My mom's face hardens. Don't start. Who boy, started. He peers in the window of the station wagon, then looks out at the trash-filled street. Take your stuff in for the night. This isn't Via Roma Road. While my mom showers for dinner, Caitlin and I run off to our room to put away our presents. The sound of water moans from the wall. I put the chest set on my dresser, which is already covered in gifts. There's the creepy-looking spirit mask, the pouch containing real live gold dust, the erasable globe where you're supposed to write in the country names like a test. I spin the globe to make sure you can see the little drawing on it, 
the stick figure woman standing where Alaska should be, which my mom must have magic markered in herself. The woman is smiling, holding a harpoon in one hand. Once my dad got drunk and wrote whore underneath the drawing when I was asleep. In the morning, he looked very ashamed and even started crying when he erased it. Caitlin and I put our ears to the wall and listened to Mom's voice, which is singing through the hum of pipes. The words are in a different language, long and beautiful. While we're waiting, I take down the shoebox from the closet and pull out my favorite letter. The envelope has a stamp of a moose on it, pasted next to a black circle that says Fairbanks, Alaska, around the edge. I open the letter carefully because it's tearing at the folds. Dear kids, a few days ago we saw the first aurora borealis, which are these swirling green lights up in the sky. They're kind of like a gigantic moving curtain. You know when people say breathtaking? They, they actually took my breath. I wish you'd been here to see them. Maybe soon, when we find our own place, you can come up to visit. Ian, you'd get a kick out of Matt's brother. He has a big red beard and breeds sled dogs, which he keeps outside even in the rain. They're the best behaved dogs in the world, nothing like Zoomer. You tell them to stay just like that, and they don't move for as long as you can watch. None of the schools here need music teachers, so I've been keeping at home while Matt teaches. I'm trying to prepare myself for the all-day darkness. Sometimes I think about your real mother and get jealous and upset because she could have taken you with her. But I can't. Your, your dad would never let me. Other times I think about things I want to say to you and send them to you in my head. I even close my eyes. Matt's brother has this tape about mind reading. It says you're supposed to picture your thoughts like snowballs. You're supposed to pack them really tight, I guess to make you concentrate. Crazy, I know. Once in a while I'll hear one of your voices in my head saying, Hello, Mom, or are you happy? And I wonder if you're sending me snowballs, too. XOXO, Mom. Caitlin asked me to read it out loud again, and I do, skipping the lines about our real mother, who died in the hospital when she was born. Afterward, we sit on the bed and choose a message to send with our brains. A single word to make it easy. Then we close our eyes and beam it at Mom in the bathroom, packing the word into a snowball, a hard and shiny secret. Stay. Later, she asks us to help with her hair, which looks brown and seaweedy from the shower. Caitlin and I take turns with the dryer, trying to make her hair as nice as possible for our father. It shimmers under the hotness and turns blonde again. Va-va-va-bloom, Caitlin shouts, pushing her into our room. This is the name of the lipstick we picked out. We bought it yesterday at Walgreens while Dad was shopping for garbage bags. My mom looks at her suspiciously but tries the lipstick, puckering her lips at the mirror above the bed, which makes me think maybe she heard our thoughts through the wall. She unpuckers her lips when she sees all the presents on my dresser. For a minute, her face looks frozen. I forgot about drawing that, she says finally, staring at the smiley-faced woman clutching her harpoon. Did you think of me like that? I nod, hoping it'll make her happy. She looks out the window. I want to ask her about the Rory Borealis, or the sled dogs in the rain, but something in her face makes me think twice. Does Fairbanks get below zero, I ask? The idea seems incredible. She frowns, turning the globe so we can't see Alaska. You know how cold it is? No one can turn their engines off. They just leave them running in the parking lot, like a humongous smog machine. While we're waiting for the pizza guy to get here with dinner, Caitlin and I go to find my father, who's lying in bed and reading his favorite book, Strange But True Dog Tales. He takes off his plastic earmuffs. We have to lie and say that Mom begged him to join us. Even then, he shows up at the table with his book, barely glancing at her lips before going back to whatever he was reading. Listen to this, he says. The faithful dog Hachiko, from Tokyo, Japan, was famously attached to his master, Professor Isaburo Uyeno. Each day, Hachi would accompany Professor Uyener to the train station when he left for work and meet him there, tail-wagging upon his return. My dad reads how Professor Uyeno died at work one day, and Hachi went to the station like always, waiting for him to come back. He did this for more than ten years. Finally, Hachi died, too, in the same spot he'd last seen his friend alive. When he gets to this part, my dad's eyes missed up, though he's read this story to us before. He seems to have chosen it on purpose. Incredible. They've put up a statue of him in the train station. Mom glares at him, her eyes not misted at all. Is this how you entertain the children? What, he says? They love these stories. No, we don't, I say. The lie makes me fidget. 
My father looks at me, betrayed. He frowns at Caitlin and the back at me. What about Daisy, the poodle with psychic powers? I look down at the table. Caitlin starts blowing bubbles in her milk, which she does when she's nervous. Mom has ESP, she says. She can hear our thoughts. Dad blinks at my mother, who blushes pink again. She stares at her lap. It's nothing, just something I feel sometimes. Your mother does not have ESP, he says. That's ridiculous. My dad goes back to his book, but keeps glancing up at the three of us, as though he's jealous of something. When the pizza comes, he insists on saying grace. Praise God from whom all blessings flow, he says. Praise God, all animals here below. Instead of saying amen, he and Caitlin bark into their pressed-together hands. It started out as a joke, but since Zoomer died, we've been doing it every night like a religious event. My mom scrapes her chair. Is this normal behavior around here? Maybe you have a better prayer, my dad mumbles, about logarithms. What? I'm sorry, I, I promised. He looks at the dog bowl in the corner, his voice catching in his throat. I, I just miss Zoomer is all. I keep waiting for him to start whimpering and paw my lap. Logarithms are covered in ants, I sing. Throw them in the fire, dance, dance, dance. Why don't you just go and get him, Mom says, ignoring me. What? Zoomer, from dog heaven. Go there and bring him home. Dad stares at her in disbelief. Just uh, whip up there myself? Sure, she says, shrugging, if you miss him so much. Christ, Jane, do you think I wouldn't? What, has he been biting other dogs? How in God's name would I know? Dad whispers. He puts his face in his hands. After a minute, he gets up and grabs Zoomer's bowl before trudging back to his room. This is not how we've planned things. My dad used to make us laugh all the time, but now he cries at the table for no reason. Last month at the airport, he saw a man die. Another ramp agent. The guy stepped too close to the engine of a 747 and flew headfirst into it like Superman. I wish I could tell this story to Mom because it might help her understand something. A pepperoni is hanging from the slice of pizza in her hand, caught in a cheese slide to her plate. He's sad because of you, I tell her, glancing at Caitlin. If you stayed here longer, it would help him. Oh, Ian. My mom sighs, napkinning her lipstick. I'm not the sort of help he needs. In the middle of the night, I get Caitlin up and we slip from our beds, tiptoeing through the TV room where my mom sleeps on the fold-out couch. This is part two of our plan. We sneak into the kitchen and I go through the knife drawer, testing the tips. Insects buzz all around us like static. Caitlin's too nervous to speak. Quietly, I open the freezer and check on Zoomer, who's grown another icicle. I ask him if we're being bad dogs. He doesn't answer me, only looks. I'm not a dog, Caitlin whispers. In the daylight, you can see the stabs in the rubber, pushed out like lips. There's one on each tire, which have sunk down to the hubcaps. Dad circles the car in his robe. A wishbone of veins bulges from his temple. He eyes me and Caitlin, who's squatting in the yard and plucking at some weeds. For some reason, she's covering the scar on her cheek. I don't believe this, Mom says. She sits on the hood, pinching the wedge of nose between her eyes. I just put new tires on. I'm worried Caitlin might say something, but she's too busy killing weeds. A homeless guy walks by on the other side of the street, pushing his shopping cart up the sidewalk and yelling at the lady in front of him, who's riding an electric wheelchair. Fucking cunt, he yells. I told you that from the first beginning. My mom glares at my father, as though the bad words are his fault. Sunday in the neighborhood, she says. Hell, Dad says, still looking at the tires. He squints down the road. I don't know what's going to be open. One place, it turns out, but it's in South Tucson, and my dad can't get anyone at the tire shop who speaks English. Mom calls our Aunt Tina in Texas, her voice taut and whispery. Still, the plan works out even better than we thought, because she can't drive a stick shift, and my father has to take the four of us to the desert museum in our blazer. There's some dog fur on the passenger seat, and Mom brushes it into a little tumbleweed and sticks it in the ashtray before sitting down. She has to sit on her hair because the air conditioning is going full blast. Smells like zombie breath. Some rats were living in the engine for a while and never got out. Amazingly, my dad has on a fancy-looking shirt with a little button at the back of the collar, which I haven't seen him wear since he was senior loan officer at the bank. His hair is combed back, parted straight as a pencil. Caitlin and I watch him in the rearview mirror. He keeps his eyes on the road, glancing now and then at the dog hair in the ashtray.
We leave the haze of the city and drive toward the mountains, which from a distance look as barren as the moon. When we pass Bianchi's Pizza, the mountains suddenly go 3D, cactus everywhere you look, their corduroy arms shimmering in the sun. It's like a see-through forest. Some of the cactus have white flowers blooming out the tops in Martian clumps. We wind up Gates Pass Road, driving by the scenic turnout where I used to set up kamikaze jumps for my bike. Can we look at the house? I ask. No, Dad says. Mom gives him a funny look. You take them by the Via Roma house? Sometimes. He coughs and meets my eyes in the rearview mirror, if we're up here anyway. Something sad drifts into my mom's face. She looks out the window, watching the street signs. Does it look the same? They've put in a hot tub where the deck used to be. Dad fiddles with the mirror. It's good for the um, javelinas. Speeds up the mating process. Mom actually smiles. I catch Caitlin's eye and we sort of chuckle along in the back seat, even though I don't really get the punchline. How long has it been since he said something funny? I think of a song. Javelinas are mating, why aren't you? Javelinas in the hot tub, cook me a stew. What on earth is that, my mom asks, laughing. A commercial? A song, Caitlin says ecstatically. My God, where does he get that from? My dad frowns in the mirror. Where do you think? At the Desert Museum, everyone stares at my mother's hair as though it's one of the exhibits. It's so hot that the animals mostly shadow bathe without moving. We look at the bighorn sheep, the coyotes, the black bear lurking in its cave. I rush my dad past the Mexican wolf sleeping like roadkill, worried he might start thinking of Zoomer and get distracted. The jaguarundi slumps on a rock and just sort of eyes us in a depressed way, and Dad says it's because all the jaguars say, Yo, jaguarundi, whenever they see him. For the yo part, he uses a dopey Italian voice. This is the second joke in one day, a miracle. So Caitlin and I go spastic laughing and spend a long time trying to duplicate my dad's voice. Mom laughs too, smiling her new wrinkles. All around us are families, normal ones with two parents, and it makes my heart jump ahead that we're the same as everyone else. Outside the hummingbird aviary, my mom gets sort of quiet again and puts her hand on my head. This is my favorite part of the museum. There must be a thousand hummingbirds in one little place, which means they dart around you and hover at your face and zip past your ear like the letter Z in flight. It's scary and beautiful at the same time. The birds are all different colors, and you have to keep yourself from swatting them like flies. Mom barely makes it through the door before they swarm all around her, attracted to her hair. She closes her eyes and doesn't move an inch. They shoot around her head like sparks. Dad calls her the bird lady, and Caitlin and I take the end of her hair and stretch it as far as we can walk so that she laughs and does a curtsy. One of the hummingbirds actually lands on the bridge of hair we've made, still as a picture. It makes my breath stop moving, too. On the drive back, we barely talk, the sun burning through my shorts. My mom spots some coyotes in the road and touches my dad's leg. He breaks the car. The coyotes cross in front of us and saunter into some shrubs. Dad doesn't move. Mom keeps her hand there for a few seconds before snapping out of her trance. I do miss it here, she says. When we get home, Dad checks the answering machine while Mom's in the bathroom. An old man's voice, deep and crackly. The skull doctor, he calls himself. He says he's back from vacation to send Zoomer's head in for a beetle bath. My dad looks embarrassed. I flash Kate in a secret look. What a kook, Dad says, frowning. He slips into a TV voice. Beetles, take me away. Later, after we've gone to bed, I can hear Mom and Dad talking in the kitchen. I'd forgotten what it sounded like, the deep and high responding to each other. Makes me feel safe and rich again. I nudge the top bunk with my foot, and Caitlin and I get up quietly and sneak down the dark hall to watch. Mom is sitting on the floor of the kitchen, my father crouched behind her in a chair. Her hair spills over his legs. He brushes it slowly, starting at the top of her head and following it down to the mess in his lap. Each stroke takes a long time. If he goes too fast, my mom turns stiff and bunches her shoulders. Caitlin stiffens along with her in the dark. Dad rests his arm between brushes and then starts again at the top. What a pain in the hair, he says, his voice small and serious. I always liked it short. But it's more of a fact than a complaint, like maybe they'd be better off without it. Though it's his day off, Dad actually gets up early the next morning to cook breakfast, his hair combed back again like a banker's. He makes Mom laugh by flipping pancakes at the ceiling. 
even finds a garage for her where they speak English. Caitlin and I squeeze along in the tow truck with my mom, watching TV in the waiting room while our tires get changed. She checks her watch during commercials, craning her neck to peer into the garage, but after last night I'm not worried. Through the window I can see a pack of clouds inching in from the mountains, creeping like a spider on lightning legs. A monsoon, I tell my mother, who bends close to the window to look. I love that smell, she says, closing her eyes. What smell? Caitlin asks. Wet desert. Mom looks hushed and happy. I forgot about it. When we get home, I'm sweating from the storm in the air. Mom goes to change her clothes, and I slink into the kitchen and open the freezer to cool off. Empty. No zoomer. Caitlin comes over and does a wide-eyed blink because the plan's working even better than we thought. I stick my head inside, which feels like dog heaven. I'm basking in the cold when my mother screams. A screech, like the squeal of a car. I rush out to the backyard. She's standing on the porch and staring down at my father, who's kneeling over a dead dog in the dirt, the back of his Born to Run t-shirt soaked with sweat. He has his earmuffs on and doesn't hear us. The tool in his hands winds through Zoomer's neck, our battery-powered carving knife. Just as the head slumps off, Dad notices us by the screen door. He turns red and stands up quickly, carving knife hanging at his side. There's blood on his T-shirt, freckling Bruce Springsteen's face. You're, You're back early, my father says, yanking the earmuffs to his neck. I wasn't expecting you for an hour. He looks at the head, which has rolled away from its body and is staring dead-faced at the sky. Took forever to melt. Zoom, zoom. He's finally thawed through. He's shaking, eyes pink and bleary. He bends down and picks up Zoomer's head like a baseball. I'm sending it to the skull doctor. My mom just stands there. What? The renderer. He's preparing the skull. He only wants Zoomer's head. She turns to me, white as her eyebrows. He has some beetles that'll eat off his face, I explain. This doesn't seem to help. Caitlin starts to cry, staring at the headless Zoomer. Mom puts a hand over Caitlin's eyes and leads her into the kitchen. My dad stands in the yard for a minute, holding the head in front of him. He lays it on the porch with two hands and then follows my mom inside, trying to explain about Zoomer's cancer and how close they were before he died. So you've got the kids lying for you. Mom stares at the wide-open door of the freezer. As if for the first time, she takes in the bubbled wallpaper and stove crusted with food before fastening on the sink. Our dishes towered there from breakfast. Caitlin is still crying, a worm of snot peeking from her nose. Look at this dump. It's no wonder they're traumatized. You can't even take care of yourself. My mom closes her eyes. I should have seen this coming. My dad's face looks sore as though he's been slapped. Right, he mumbles, with your psychic powers. What? ESP. Very convenient. You can skip off to Alaska and still talk to the kids every day. You're going to talk to me about raising kids? Dad smiles in an ugly way. He bows his head and puts his fingers to his temples as though remembering a date. Go ahead, psychic woman. Show us your powers. I'm thinking of a word. Don't, Howard. Jesus. Starts with W. We'll be normal, I say. My mom covers her ears. I should never have stayed here. I knew this was a mistake. I grab her hair. I can't think of a song right away, and so I pull it as far as it goes, like we did at the Desert Museum, to make her laugh. Ow, she yells. Ian, that hurts. She rips her hair away from my hands. She goes into the TV room and shuts the door. I can hear her inside packing up her things. Outside again, my dad digs a grave for Zoomer's body, which has started to draw flies. He mutters to himself as he works, the earmuffs still clamped around his neck. Afterward, he seals Zoomer's head in a garbage bag and lays it tenderly in a box, stuffing the top with blue ice packets. The box says fragile on the sign. Go get your sister, he tells me. He holds the box in the air. We're going to the post office. Your mom wants to be alone. No, I say. She came all the way to see you. She won't sneak out before we get back. He grabs my arm and I start to flail, making him drop the package with Zoomer's head in a prickly pair. My dad tightens his grip. When he speaks, though, his voice is calm and gentle. She was never going to live with us. Yes, she was. I'm sorry, kiddo. She was leaving today anyway. You can slash your tires all you want. He loosens his grip. A fly sits on his wedding ring like a jewel. She gets sick inside your mother. You don't realize that. 
It's all hooray the greatest for a while. Everything's breathtaking. Like Alaska, I'm sure. Then suddenly she can't bear another minute. His face looks weak. Weak and stupid, the earmuffs skewed around his neck. I yank my arm away and fish the box from the prickly pear and hold it in front of my face. Kiss me, I say like a woman. My voice is shaking. Stop it, he says. I'm still alive. Kiss me with your tongue. Stop it. Hump me. I want your puppies. I push the box at his face, making a kissing sound with my lips. My dad grabs it from my hands. I bolt away from him and run around the side of the house, my shoes slapping as they hit the driveway. Dog fucker, I shout. I want everyone to hear. I run into the front yard, which smells sweet and cindery in the first drops of rain. The drops make little craters in the dirt. After a while, my dad rounds the house and walks down the driveway, dragging Caitlin by the hand. The box with Zoomer's head is cradled under one arm. He looks at me for only a second, a sad sort of who are you, before getting into the blazer and backing out the drive. I lie down in the dirt, closing my eyes. It starts to rain, to pour. It's like the sky just opens up and collapses. Rain pelts my eyelids, gurgling all around me. My shirt soaks through, painted to my skin. I can feel the ground melting beneath me. I can't breathe or talk or open my eyes. The rain nibbles at my face, eating it away speck by speck. Unless my mother finds me. Unless she hears my thoughts and runs out of the house and plucks me from the rain. Help me, I think, trying to pack the thought into a snowball. The ground is flooding. Water creeps up my neck, warm and bathtubby. I wait and wait and wait. I beam more thoughts in my mother, picturing them like darts this time, flying through the window and bullseyeing her brain. Water seeps into my ears. The rain goes quiet, devouring my face. I want my mom to save me. I want to lie in bed with her, snuggled there till noon. After a long time, the rain slows to a normal drip. Someone scoops me from the mud. It's not my mother. The strange man lifting me by the armpits. His glasses are steamed into little moons. He shakes me till my ears unplug, sparkling inside from the leftover water. Are you okay? He shouts. I nod. My father sets me down. He clutches me tightly as though I'm going to slip through his fingers. His nipples, strange and hairy, show through his t-shirt. For some reason, they make me feel alive. Caitlin lurks behind him in the rain, hugging the box with Zoomer's head. The streets are flooded, she explains to our mother, who comes out with an umbrella. We couldn't drive. Mom shakes her head, staring at the box. The TV murmurs through the screen door. She looks old to me and tired, holding the umbrella with two hands. For God's sake, you're soaked. Kids, get inside right now. You'll die of the flu. They'll be fine. It's the middle of the summer. Dad lets go of me. They're stronger than I am. She looks at his bloody shirt. What are you, a doctor? I'm their father, my dad says. By afternoon, the streets are still flooded, people getting swamped in the middle of the road. On TV, we see some rescuers pull an old man from his car, his shorts shoved up so you can see his diaper. My mom's garbage bags are lined up neatly by the door. Through the window, I can see her sitting on the porch, staring out at our street, which has turned into a brown river like the others. She looks still and untouchable, like something from a museum. I'm going to miss my interview, she says, when Caitlin and I go out to visit. Her hair is braided into a horse tail, so long she has to rest it on one knee. Amazingly, the sun is hotter than before. Our socks have dried already on the railing, crisp as worms. I'll have to be a baggage handler, like your father. He's a ramp agent, I say. My mom just tightens her lips. Her face is glazed with sweat. I want to tell her something about my father. How he worked on Christmas morning last year, making triple time to pay for our presents. Or how I caught him once in the bathroom, smelling one of her old tennis shirts that he refused to wash. Did your father talk to you about living in Austin? Caitlin shakes her head. I should have known. We're moving, Caitlin asks. Mom looks at her lap. It's up to you two. We both think it's a good idea. Your father needs some time, you know, to get his life together. She moves her braid from one knee to the other. I'll be back in a couple weeks. You have time to think it over. Dad's not coming, I ask. My mother sighs. Your dad, father, has a lot on his mind. Caitlin looks at the porch. How about if he gets his old job back? Right, ha, and I'll be singing with the Vienna Opera. 
Mom says this in a voice I've never heard, curled in and disgusted. Kind you might use for smelly feet or food you can't stand. She fans herself with both hands. God, how can you stand this place? She gets up and goes to the end of the porch, holding her tank top away from her back. When she lets go, it turns pink against her skin like a magic trick. She spins around again, frowning. I didn't mean that. She tries to smile and musses my hair. Don't worry about Austin yet, silent kid. How about one of your songs? I look at the street, at the moving water. I don't feel like making up any songs. Later, Caitlin wakes me up in the middle of the night, whispering my name from the top bunk. She hangs her face off the edge, hair dandelioned from her head. She wants to know what the plan is. Outside, the insects buzz and buzz, never rest. I tell her to go back to sleep. There aren't going to be any more plans. You said, if the other didn't work. It was all just pretend, I say. Grow up. We stabbed the tires. I stabbed the tires. You didn't do anything. She pulls her head from the edge. I can feel the vaults of anger from her bunk. A car drives by in the street, slow as a bicycle, and you can see a movie of it on the wall. Mom came back, Caitlin says defiantly. She doesn't even look the same. I get out of bed, pretending I have to pee. Carpet is limp and sweaty on my feet. My mother is sound asleep in the TV room, and I stop and watch her from the doorway. She's lying with her back to me, wearing a T-shirt that says, Bear Safely in Alaska. In the moonlight, I can make out the perfect twists of her braid. It hangs off the mattress, touching the floor. On the table beside her is the fake bone she brought from Alaska. Standing there by myself, I think of Zoomer, which makes me think of that dog in Japan, the one who waited at the station every day for his master's return. Imagine waiting all those years, picturing the ideal perfect ghost in your head. The freezer light is on in the kitchen, glowing through the cracked open door. Dad stuffed the box in as best he could. Maybe it'll sit there after we're gone, a frozen secret, while my father grows old and gray and little. Quietly, I peer into Dad's room on the other side of the kitchen. He's asleep like my mom, his face strange without his glasses. He looks peaceful under the covers, calm and smiling. I wonder if he's dreaming about Zoomer up in dog heaven. I close my eyes and have this vision of a place without people, cool as Alaska. Zoomer's there, of course, and the Mexican wolf, and the hummingbirds shooting around like sparks. The Jagarundi are just as famous as the jaguars. Oh, give me a home where the grizzly bears roam. Even the dermistid beetles are there, eating fruit and avoiding everyone's face. Everyone's happy. And in charge of it all is my father, top dog, earmuffs turned around his neck like a collar. My dad stops snoring. I don't know how long I've been there. He sits up and switches on the lamp, blinking in the light. Don't cry, he says. I'm not. That's my job. He scoots over, patting the space beside him. I crawl up in bed with him. He lets me under the sheet where it's still warm from his body. A song starts to come to me, the first few words turning in my head. There's some scampering in the hall. Who's there? Dad says. Caitlin comes charging through the door. She's holding scissors. In the other hand, she lifts our mother's hair like a snake, grinning at me, ecstatic, waiting to be loved. Today's program was produced by Jonah Willingans, the director of the Stanford Storytelling Project, and myself, Bonnie Swift. Thanks to Stephen Tegel and James Madsen for their audio essay, and also to Eric Buchner. You can find Animals Here Below and other short stories in his collection, Music Through the Floor. And special thanks to Bob Smith for his help in the recording studio. Original music was written and performed by the Stanford band Ember, whose music can be found on Stanford iTunes. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Continuing Studies Program, the Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts, the Stanford Oral Communication Program, and the Hume Writing Center. Remember that you can find a podcast of this and every fabulous episode of the Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. On this week's podcast is a special interview with Eric Puchner and storytelling producer Lee Constantino. Tune in next week for stories about approaching Africa, how the media approaches Africa, how one student experienced Africa, and a little bit about how Africa has approached the United States. For the Stanford Storytelling Project, I'm Bonnie Swift. Get those plans, home blues, 